Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams, and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well, plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Actung, actung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk USA. And uh, with me, James Holland, and with John McManus, we haven't got Al today because Al is doing the recording the audio of my new book, Savage Storm. Um, and oh he's trying gosh. to kind of, he's trying to get it finished this week. Um, so yeah, so I'm, I'm kind of a little bit nervous about what he's going to make of it all. But but, but anyway, he's he's After he's in the recording right. studio, a different recording studio. So, but anyway, so John, you know, but that doesn't matter. I mean, yeah, it's always, uh, we always want Al, but you know, we can chat on our own, can't we? Absolutely, very yeah. happily so. So, how are you? What news? Um, um, are you are you kind of sort of getting ready for term? I am. Yeah, it starts a week from today. So oh we're recording God. on the fifteenth, and my classes start the twenty second, and yep. we will be off and running. It's uh, I got full classes. It's gonna be gonna be nuts, so but in a good way. Good. Um, well, I've I'm. It, it's weird having had the um, the nonfiction Savage Storm kind of put to bed. I'm now I'm now back on novel. Um, you know, and I haven't, I've written loads of novels, but I haven't written one for a few years. So it's, it's been a kind of interesting experience, but this is all kind of, um, this is all set back in, well, kind of 1939, 1940. So it's the start of the war set on a, it's a, it's a kind of family saga really, but kind of largely set on a, on a farm, very kind of close to where I live down here in Wiltshire. It's been so interesting going back over the contemporary literature, you know, morale reports, um, mass observation, which was this organization that was set up in the 1930s and getting, you know, people to write in diaries and get in, send in their diaries and reading all those and reading all that material. Right now in the novel, it's, it's, it's Norway is always going, is, is going kind of pear shaped. So it's late April 1940. You know, the, uh, the, the, the blitzkrieg in the West is just about to kick off, but hasn't yet. And what's, what's, try, what I'm trying to do is to recreate that kind of sense of impending doom. Mm, that everyone's feeding you know they've just been living in this little kind of secure little england you know it's all okay you know the buses run past on on waterloo bridge and you know down in wiltshire where where the where their farm is you know with the sort of rhythms of the annual season kind of come and go and all that and suddenly everything is under threat it's all been fascinating but you know we're in our 1943 mode at the moment and, and looking at the 80th anniversary and although we we're kind of recording this um uh, you know on the uh, around the anniversary of, of vj day actually it's 1943 that i think we should be looking at again and yeah, yeah. the one thing we've not looked at at all we just never ever covered at all on this show is operation tidal wave yeah. you know the, the the american daylight low level bombing raid on Plesti. And, you know, Plesti is right up there on the target list, isn't it? Uh, it's it has been right be, from the word go. Absolutely. It's considered to be perhaps the highest priority target because obviously that's where Germany get, is getting its oil. 
So yep. if you can take away their oil, then obviously you dealt them a heavy blow. I mean, that, that is a major point of vulnerability for Germany in this war, that they don't really have their own kind of secure source of oil that's at least enough for their needs. And it's yeah. partially what's pushing you know the campaign in Russia to, to some extent, too, because they were dependent upon the Soviet Union for oil. You know, after the Nazi Soviet pact, you know, mm-hmm. they're, they're getting that. But in a way, that's a, that's a tough bargain for them. Yep. And uh, so Ploesti, obviously in Romania, which is dominated by a fascist regime, is the most secure point they've got. So, you know, we've got air forces now in the Mediterranean, in the in North Africa, that can strike. So it makes total sense. And I also think, too, that the, at least the first Ploesti raid is a sort of extreme example of the American doctrine of, well, we're going to have uh, daylight precision raids, and yep. that's how we yeah, can yeah, destroy yeah. these industrial targets. And then in this case, they decide on the low level. I mean, we've all seen the photos, right? Of the like, yeah. Yeah, B-24s yeah, yeah, yeah. right next to smokestacks. And, and it's yes, just- Yes, it's kind And they of are incredibly low. There's no question about it. It's just, it's incredible yeah. to think about. Well, I, I, think we should, I've, I think we should unpick all of this. Um, so so I, I do find it absolutely incredible that Germany keeps going until, you know, April 19, May 1945, when it has so little fuel, and what it does have is lots of coal. And actually, I, w- I went to the remains of a um, one of one of the synthetic fuel plants. So thirty percent of their fuel was real oil, um, which came from Pro- all of it came from Plasti. But but the rest of it is synthetic fuel, which is incredibly expensive and costly and, and inefficient use of your coal source. But it's the one thing they do have. And what was amazing about this 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 place up in Poland was that. You, it, it basically had been abandoned. It had been bombed by the RAF. Then the Red Army had overrun it. So it had become redundant. And everyone had just left it because there was no point in repairing it. And no one could be bothered to kind of pull it to pieces either. So it's just, it's still there. You know, it's, it's, like, it's like coming to a kind of sort of, you know, the ruins of El Dorado in, in <laughs> you know, in, in Peru or something. <laughs> right. instead, instead of finding a kind of sort of, you know, I don't know, a sort of Inca, um, Inca, um, <laughs> city it's it's a nazi synthetic fuel plant but the, so you have all these kind of weird shapes and concretes and you know kind of tubes going across the roadway and railway sidings and, and loads and loads of buildings and weird shaped stuff that sort of looks like a kind of modern version of stonehenge and, and then then there's this huge great tower which is where this is the coal crushing tower where you pour mm. all this t- this coal in and it would grind it down into kind of dust which you then use as part of the synthetic fuel process and on the ground still is the coal dust it's still oh there oh my gosh wow and trees growing out of it and you know j- you know it's like the sort of metaphoric yeah. jungle it's still vestiges and, and of, of that process totally yeah. yeah yeah the whole thing is just so weird and spooky and eerie and and you've got kind of sort of modern day poles kind of walking their dogs and stuff. It's kind of now a, <laughs> a kind of nature park. I mean, which is sort of brilliant, isn't it? But but it's a it was such a reminder of the scale that the Germans had to go to to get their fuel. So Plesti, you know, and this is why when when the Allies you know do make this decision to invade Italy, it's an absolute no brainer because they know that the Germans absolutely are going to. Fill in the gaps where the Italians have been in throughout the, you know, because the moment Italy surrenders, they've got to either kind of abandon the whole of Greece and the Balkans and, and Italy itself or fill them with their own troops. And they're always going to because Presti is, is, is a point of immense paranoia for Hitler. And, you know, and you, and you look at the German war aims. The quest for oil is actually right up there. I mean, it's, it's part yep. and parcel of Liebensraum. 
It's basically I, oil, wheat, Lebensraum. I mean, it's it's all those mixed together. And it, yeah. well, you know, and the other thing, Jim, is that that's partly what enrages Hitler about the Italian um, invasion of Greece. Because he's thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, now here's another way for the British to get back on the continent, have bases in Greece to bomb Ploesti. I mean, yes. it, that's, that's exactly a that. problem. Exactly and it's that. one of the reasons why you send troops down there, you know, to, into the Balkans. Yeah. Uh, you know, eventually Yugoslavia and Greece, which is not a good bargain for them ultimately. But at that point, they had to eject the allies. Yes. And particularly when you think what timing that is, you know, that's that sort of March, April 19 and, and into May with Crete. So it's that spring of 1941, just before they're about to launch the largest yeah. invasion, military invasion ever mounted in the history of the world. You need that like a bolt in the head from a from a kind of you know, Nazi point of view. But but you know, you, you, one of the reasons why he's egging on Rommel in the Western Desert in North Africa in the summer of you know in, the, in May 1942 is because the promise is the Middle East oil fields, even though they're quite small and underdeveloped at that stage, it's still oil. And one of the reasons why they're kind of pushing on and, and creating Operation Blue in the summer of 1942 is to get to Caucasus. Why do they want to get to Caucasus? To get to oil. I mean, yep. the fact that no one's actually thought how they're going to move this oil is neither here nor there. Oil is absolutely key to it. And one of the, one of the statistics I found absolutely incredible is that in 1944, their total use is four and a half million gallons of the stuff, whereas domestic use in Britain alone is two and a, is 22 and a half million. <laughs> Tells you something, doesn't it? You know, forget the military. Yeah. That's just domestic use. Wow. Well, it, you know, you really could say, I mean, oil is the blood of the Industrial Revolution, of course. Of course. But you really could say oil is to some extent what's driving this war from an Axis point of view, because it's the same deal with the Japanese, too. I mean, they decide they're going to strike once we, we slap an oil embargo on them in 1941 in response to, obviously, the Japanese occupation of uh, northern Vietnam, which also is ironic in light of later history. And I, I often say that in my World War II class. I say, ironically, the U.S. goes to war with Japan over Vietnam, not for Vietnam's sake, but just because that's an accelerator for the embargo and all the rest of it. Right. Um, you know, so Japan is operating on that basis. And one of the reasons why they lose is U.S. submarines just savage their oil tankers, so they're not able to make use of the so-called Dutch East Indies uh, oil right. you know, resources. So here's Germany mm -hmm. dealing with the same thing, and really more cutting edge than Japan in being able to create a synthetic oil industry. Yeah. Um, it's a testament to their their knowledge of chemistry and their, their industrial innovation and all that. But like you said, it's expensive, it's time-consuming, the fuel product isn't as good, tougher on the engines. All of that impact. So that has knock-on effects and all the rest of it. Yeah, wear and tear. Yeah, and definitely. Blah, blah, blah. And they've got lots of different makes because they can't mass produce. So that means you've got to have different bits for everything because uh, there's mm -hmm. no standardization, blah, blah, blah. So you, you are getting into a kind of, you know, a real pickle. You're getting into a kind of sort of, you know, a, a cycle of of mounting problems. But, but what it does do is it puts Ploesti as... Uh, and Presti, like all like all these places, you know, we talk about Foggia and the airfields of Foggia. There's lot. This is that is a that is a kind of sort of byword for for a series of of airfields in Foggia's case. In yeah. Presti, what we're talking about is a series of different oil fields, oil wells, refineries, and all the rest of it. It's not just one single plant, but it is thirty percent of their fuel, and it is the only real fuel. So it is really, really important real estate. Germany, and they are absolutely going to protect it come what may. So from an Allied point of view, and particularly from a US point of view, you know, we've got Operation Point Blank. And Operation Point Blank, mooted by Acre in uh, the Casablanca Conference in January 1943, and then kind of rubber stamped at the beginning of June 1943, is to try, you know, the aim 
the primary aim of the strategic air forces is to destroy the Luftwaffe first and foremost. Mm-hmm. And that means destroying plants, destroying component plants. It also means destroying plastic. You know, that's yep. all part of it. This is all part of the kind of tightening of the noose. It's not a surprise that Ploesti pretty early on in the in the in the game starts becoming a kind of, you know, a a, a major target in this kind of post rubber stamping of point blank. You know, it's it's an absolute part and parcel of it. The problem is it's in Romania and how do you get there? And and the main strategic air force for the United States was supposed to be the 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 eighth air force operating out of England. But as it's turned out, America's and, and the Allies kind of um Commitment to the Mediterranean has been absolutely colossal. So most of the strategic aircraft, most of the heavies that have been earmarked for the Eighth Air Force have actually been sent to the Mediterranean. And it's only by the kind of spring, early summer of 1943 that finally the Eighth Air Force is starting to kind of take some shape in the UK. But at that very moment, they decide that Plasti needs a hammering. But there aren't enough four-engine heavy bombers with the, with, with the range to go all the way from Allied bases somewhere in the Mediterranean to Ploesti. And the B-17s have a shorter range than the B-24s. So they then move three bomb groups, Liberator, B-24 Liberator bomb groups, from the UK over to North Africa to join the 98, 376 bomb group in North Africa. And they base themselves at Benghazi. Mm-hmm. You know, in Cyrenaica, in the kind of sort of in the, yep. in the kind of eastern half of of Libya, this sort of bulge, and that is where they're going to mount it from. So, so, so you've got these very discombobulated crews who who have to fly first across Europe down to North Africa, which is quite a job, quite a job to make that flight in the first place, and then to acclimate these new bases, which are not very welcoming, very not very nice, especially compared to England. No, it's 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 sand and and wind and and tents. And you know the, the 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 sand and the wind are kind of sandpapering your 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 aircraft to death, yep. and, and you know engines. it's it's all a bit grim. But the idea is to mount this this one big operation, and and this ties into notions of daylight bombing, doesn't it? And, it really and the, does. You know the the bomber men of the 1930s emerge in the in the 1930s, and they're all now in charge. The U.S. air effort in Europe. This is sort of Acre, Spots, Doolittle, all these guys. Hap Arnold, of course, who's who's you know absolutely, they're very wedded to this notion of bombing has to be accurate and it has to be done by daylight. Yeah, and also the aircraft were built with that in mind to some extent. Right, that they're they're supposedly designed for that. That they're bristling with uh, you know fifty calibers or whatever that allow you force protection against fighters because of that cone of fire that you've got. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the Norton bombsite gives you a level of accuracy not yet seen in human history. Now, you combine this with uh, the sort of uh, aerial evangelism that, that's going on with uh, the Army Air Forces of we're the new form of warfare, you know, three-dimensional warfare, warfare from above. This is what this is the future. Well, you can definitely see how this leads to a sort of zeal um, and perhaps yeah. an over-optimism as to how well this can work. So it, I, I really think Ploesti is interesting in the sense that it's it's a terrible harbinger for Germany because it, it shows what mm. the Allies are capable of now and how right. Ploesti is really going to be a, an aggrieved target big time. But it also shows how early you are in the game from an Allied point of view in terms of how to implement this and the kind of price you're going to have to pay to hit a target like that. I mean, of course, we see it at Schweinfurt and, and Regensburg, too, around the same time. This is just the oil target and a different force coming from a different place, right? I mean, it's the same kind yep. of thing. Yeah, I, and I think you need to see 
Well, we'll talk about this at the end, but I, I do think you need to see, see you know, um, Schweinfurt and Presti in the kind of same bracket. You know, the, the, this is this is the U.S. Um, Army Air Force, and particularly Strategic Air Force, the Air Force, particularly. You know, trying to flex its muscles and prove what it pr- prove the bombermen correct, and actually it proves them incorrect. You know, it pr- or, or proves them that actually there's other factors to take into consideration, and the big plan, i.e. You know, operating in these effectively like a shipping convoy. You you know you you move in mass and you're staggered and staged. So so you you're, you're spread out both longitudinally and latitudinally, if you see what I mean. You know, in terms of height. You know, so you're you're stacked up at different heights and you're you're spread out over a different airspace. So you're in a kind of big block. You, you know, you you move your formations in a different block. Each aircraft's got thirteen fifty caliber machine guns. So. You're, you know, the, the, the planners, the thinkers are, are viewing this in terms of, okay, well, this, this is not one aircraft with with 13 machine guns. This is a formation of 42 um, machines with 13, uh, 13 machine guns, which is, you know, whatever 13 times That's 42 is. That's a hell of a lot of firepower. That's I mean, a hell of a really lot of firepower. Is. And so on paper, that looks, that looks terrific. You, you know, the British have been there at a, at, a, at a time where they didn't have amazing bomb sites and they didn't have, uh, and they didn't have great navigation aids. And they discovered that if you went around bombing stuff in daytime, you got slaughtered, which is why they moved it to nighttime. Then they also kind of realized that what you need to do is operate in a stream at height, so, you know, so that you're not kind of vulnerable at lower heights. But occasionally they made these little forays. So, you know, in, in, in April 1942, they did the Augsburg Raid, which is 12 Lancasters going on this low-level raid to hit the manned diesel plants, which is diesel engines made for, for the U-boats in Augsburg, which is in kind of sort of, you know, southern southern Germany. And I think only five got back. And so it was a complete slaughter. And everyone went, whoa, you know, <laughs> no more low-level daylight stuff. But suddenly it's kind of, you know, the Americans have to do it their own way and they, they have to kind of learn their own lessons. They have to learn and, the hard way too. You know, you can, you can listen to what the, the <laughs> pesky British say and what the Limeys are saying, but, but, but the American response to that was, yeah, but you learned those lessons in 1940 when everything was rubbish and you had no kind of... <laughs> right, and that's totally different now. <laughs> it's different, you know, because we've got 1350 caliber machine guns. You've just got pet pea shooters in your Browning 303s and, you know, we've got better navigation aids and we've got the Norton bomb site, and, you know, we're going to operate things, so it's going to be fine. And so the British go, okay, fine. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Good luck with that. And, and, and the Americans aren't to be deterred. The, the thing that the, the British aren't dealing with another form of baggage too, that the Americans are, that the, the army air forces leaders desperately want independence for their service. Right. And that's really in a lot of ways, what this is about at their level, not for the crewman, of course, you know, yeah. he couldn't care less. I mean, he wants to survive, but for Hap Arnold and, and his retinue, that's to a great extent what this is about. Uh, yes. And that's what the bombing campaign amounts to. And so, I mean, that's why there's a level of stubbornness, uh, but also innovation, too, I would say. Yeah. Uh, so because it was I, ridiculous that they were part of the army. I mean, let's just be honest about that. Of yes. course, they're right. Um, yeah. But but I also think that there's this sort of messianic zeal that over promises a very good product, maybe is, is how I've often put it. Um, the air power is great. But, you know, what's interesting, too, Jim, looking back on this. Uh, speaking of like Schweinfurt, Regensburg, and Ploesti, from the German point of view, they're battles in the same campaign. And it, it's eerily similar to like Guadalcanal and Buna in that 
It's really yes. battles of the same campaign, uh, but we don't look at it that way in the sort of allied world because it was two completely different commands doing their own thing. Yeah. Um, we tend to see it as completely separate battles, whereas they're really not. So Ploesti is part and parcel with Schweinfurt. They're even happening in the same time frame, roughly. You know, same month, um, and they have similar results. Well, yeah, I mean, but, you know, less than three weeks apart. So, you know, absolutely, absolutely, they should be seen seen in 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 the, in the same bracket. And you know, the the, the bottom line is is Presti can be kind of sort of deep inside the kind of you know the boundaries of German influence, you know, in Romania. But but inevitably, the more important the target to the Germans. Uh, or rather, the more important, important, yeah, the more important the facility to the Germans, the more they're going to protect it. And and you know, this is in the in the realms of uh, of Luftwaffe General Alfred Gerstenberg. You know, he 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 is uh, around there is one of the strongest air defense systems anywhere in Europe. And you know, you can include Berlin in that. You know, proportionally. So you know, what you've got is you've you, you've got several hundred large caliber. 105s and 88 millimeter anti um, anti aircraft guns, many 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 more smaller cannons. Um, there, lots of them are concealed as well, so they're not just obvious sort of batteries. Some of them are concealed in houses and haystacks and and, and what have you, and and um, mock buildings. That that's a lot. You know, we're talking hundreds of guns here and to protect these the fighters facilities. too. Plus, not just German fighters, but also, and you don't see this at Schweinfurt, it's Romanian and some Bulgarian fighters they're going to be about too. So they're, they're drawing on allies and all the population. I mean, so the, these, I mean, Ploesti is that, that series of refineries and whatever that we generally just call Ploesti because it is a little dizzying. There's, a, there's tons of stuff. And obviously that just is because this is where they're finding the oil. So that's why it's spread out all over. But um, that network is arguably the most heavily defended target uh, on some yeah. levels, or maybe most effectively defended. Maybe I ought to put it differently. You know, so if you're, you're talking about hitting at low level, why are you doing that for accuracy? Of course, because mm-hmm. you can figure you can really inflict more damage, great deal of truth to that, but that's bad news for the crews. So this yeah. is a, what 178 planes, B-24s yep. we're sending there from the Benghazi area. And they've, they've trained really intensively for this mission. This isn't just a kind of a shoestring in, in that yep. respect. The crews are really very, very intensively prepared. It kind of reminds me a little bit of the first few strikes on, on Rabal in that it's this sort of, uh, you know, Emerald City out there in a way that, that you know, Allied uh-huh. crewmen wants to hear, we're hitting Rabal, you know, that's the ultimate, mm. that's just incredible. These guys have the same view of Ploesti and think this could be a war winner. You know, we really can make a difference mm-hmm. here. Um, um, but, and- but, but the interesting thing about it is it, it is an entirely U.S. operation. And, you know, you have to ask yourself, well, why is that? Well, part of the reason is because there aren't any British heavies in the Mediterranean. And why aren't there any in the Mediterranean? Well, partly because they're still trying to get a big enough number to be in Bomber Command, which is a strategic air force. And, and largely because the RAF Middle East um, and in, in the Mediterranean, operating out of Egypt and, and you know North Africa, has been focusing on what you'd call, I mean, yes, strategic bombing, but strategic bombing using twin engine aircraft rather than heavies, you know, because it's a Mediterranean, you're not, you know, you're not bombing, you're not trying to flatten entire cities. So you get greater flexibility with the, with the twin engine aircraft and speed to a certain extent than you do with the big heavies. It gives the, it gives the RAF kind of what they consider greater flexibility. 
you know, because you're not trying to hit these these big targets, you know, these big cities, you do, you do, the feeling is you don't need these heavies. And the, the heavies you do have are better used back home in, 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 you know, operating out of the UK. Whereas the Americans don't, don't subscribe to that. And very early on in the, in the summer of 1942, pre-Alamein, they send over the first consignment of B-24s, which is the Halpro, the Halverson project under Colonel Halverson, which becomes HALPRO, H-A-L-P-R-O. That, and, and that's a little kind of sort of, it's not quite a, it's a bit more than a squadron, but it's not quite a bomb group. And, and they start doing kind of slightly longer range operations, you know. And, and then, they, then they become um, a, a bit more of, a, a, of an entity with the arrival of the 376 bomb group. But that's it. That's all you've got in the Mediterranean at, at, at that point in terms of liberators in, 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 you know, by the spring of 1942. And then more and more come and, and you know, B-17s get sent to, you know, into, into Northwest Africa and so on. But it's only with the help of these three seconded B, um, bomb groups, heavy bomb groups of liberators operating from, from the UK and and, um, uh, and part of the Eighth Air Force being sent over the Mediterranean to Benghazi, that this single raid can be mounted. So there's a lot of coordination there because suddenly you've got people who aren't used to operating with one another. And and you know on a, on a kind of crew level that doesn't really matter. You know if you've got a new guy in the squadron, it doesn't you know so what. But but when you're trying to coordinate different formations together, you're and you've got you know you, you're talking about dealing with colonels. These colonels don't know each other. They've, you know, the three bomb groups from UK have come over and they're kind of meeting each other for the first time. And there's not there's training, but there's not really much. And, and there is a kind of there's a slight kind of disconnect of cooperative capability. I would say at the staff at the staff level at the staff level and, and at the at the at the kind of you know middle command level. Yeah, exactly. I mean, those are incredible units, by the way. The 44th, the, the 389th, and the 93rd, all of which are going to have just an incredible um, record in this war. And then especially, like, if you were a crewman in one of those units late 44 in England, it'd almost blow your yeah. mind that your unit was in on the <clears throat> Ploesti raid, that it was based <laughs> in uh, in Libya. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, there, yeah, I yeah. mean, I think it's amazing how well the, the raid on Ploesti does come off, given all those issues you were mentioning about yeah. the disconnect at the colonel level at the staff level or whatever the coordination problems the, yeah. the um, you know the redeployment problems that you've got when you're moving from england to because uh -huh. it's not just a matter of flying the planes there it's a matter of having all Ground the support crew, ordinance yeah, yeah all the ordinance all the the uh, the tools you need in order to maintain this stuff yeah. Um, and of yep. course, the more adverse circumstances of operating in the desert, what that's going to mean for your equipment, right. all that stuff is, is really a problem. So I think it demonstrates flexibility, but issues. And, and it is still a long way. So, so, so yeah. the route that, you know, the, the route is to go across the Adriatic Sea, just fly kind of a little bit north. I think, I think it is of Corfu, which is, yeah, exactly. you know, that's on the, that's off the kind of, that's between Italy and Greece. So it's in that kind of you know, Ionian Sea, um, uh, that's Odysseus territory, really. Um, <laughs> you know, that's where, that's where his island's nearby. And, um, uh, and then over the Pindus Mountains in Albania, across southern Yugoslavia, then into southwest Romania, and then you turn east towards Ploesti. So there's all these checkpoints, but, but no one will have, not a single person there will have flown that route before. Right. I mean, there's exactly there's there's no muscle memory there. This is you are the pioneer going in, and there you know it, there's no way this could work completely. And this, and this is well, this is you know. the first of August, 
1943. This is not yeah. the 1st of August, 1944. You know, so, so mm-hmm. yes, you've got navigational aids, but they're still not as good as they're going to be six months later, certainly not a year later. So, so, so it's all this is a very, very challenging operation. Anyway, on that note, let's take a break, and then we will um, come back and get on with the actual raid itself. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk USA with me, James Holland, and with John McManus in the States. And we are talking about Operation Tidal Wave, 1st of August, 1943, the first major strategic heavy bomber raid on the Ploesti airfields in Romania. Absolutely so vital for the German war effort. So here we are. So we're on the, we're on the morning of the 1st of August, um, 1943, John. We've got five groups, three from the UK, which have been seconded from the 8th Air Force, two already out here, part of the kind of, you know, of the Halpro detachment. And off they go, kind of early in the morning, huge amounts of dust kicking off. You know, can oh, you terrible. imagine 178 heavy bombers taking off from the desert? Oh, imagine it's just the craziness. Dust. And they, they lost one aircraft, I think, as they it all just took one. off, yep. which is amazing. It wasn't more. Yep, yep, uh, yep. You know, but and of course, pretty quickly. I mean, it's really not not soon thereafter. We're going to lose cohesion. I mean, it, and I think in yes. some ways the biggest problem with the raid is self inflicted. The radio silence, which is understandable, because yep. I think there's a secret raid. Although they don't know the Germans have basically cracked our Ninth Air Force codes and know we're coming. Um, how are they going to know that? But that's a problem. Yep. Um, yep. But yeah, I mean, all this radio silence means it's almost impossible to coordinate along that long route. Mm-hmm. Uh, so pretty quickly, the 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 groups get discombobulated. Uh, yep. People get lost. 
ditch, go back, whatever, you know, so it's, uh, it's hardly a kind of a, you know, concentrated mass once you finally do get into Romanian airspace. Well, there's a, there's a, there's a kind of a bit of a, there's a bit of a kind of sort of cohesion breakup on the way out as they're going across the Adriatic. I mean, you know, this is a big old stretch of sea, you know, and, and you know, they're flying a kind of decent, decent height to start off with, but, but even so, it's very, very easy to kind of lose your bearings. And and one of the formation, a uh, uh, um, number of plane number twenty eight, which is Wongo Wongo, which is uh, um, piloted by Lieutenant Lieutenant, I should say, Brian Flavel. He he starts something something something's gone on with his aircraft, and he's flying erratically, and he starts sort of dropping towards the sea. And his best friend is a fellow pilot called Guy. Iovine, um, and he's he's piloting an aircraft called Desert Lily. Uh, these are from the 376, so they're not the kind of new guys coming over from the um, uh, from, from the eighth. They're already guys who've been out in the Mediterranean. So so he goes down to kind of try and look for him and sees nothing at all, just can't see him. And, and, and basically, Wongo Wongo's just gone straight into the sea. But by that time, he's unable, because of the bomb loads and all the rest of it, and, and because he's kind of fallen out of formation, it's impossible for him to get back in, in formation. And the whole of that particular formation from the 376 starts to lose all kind of cohesion. So that tight formation, which is so crucial to your planning for, for, for your defensive strength, starts to come apart. And it's the same with, you know, you know the, the, the analogy of, of the convoy going across the Atlantic is a good one because it's always the straggler that gets taken out by the, by the U-boat. And you've got to kind of, you know, you, you know you've, you've, you've got to keep it. And it just doesn't happen. No. Nope. So you, you've basically got a series of staggered formations by the time you're on the continent, uh, getting over yep. those mountains, getting into Romanian airspace. It's a, to be sure, it's a potent force. Yep. Um, and, and one of the reasons it's potent is because these are really good crews that are trained up well for this mission and have a solid yep. understanding of why they're doing what they're doing and are quite dedicated. And they can pack some wallop. But um, you know, the original concept is out the door, uh, much less the fact that the enemy is alerted. Those, all those flak batteries we were talking about. I mean, these crews are alerted for action Yep, and that's going to be a serious problem. Um, and then obviously the fighters, but, but one thing, you know, one thing that does help in a weird way is now you're flying really low and that can negate mm. some of the flak, ironically enough. And the fighters aren't yes. going to always go down and all that, you know? So, so one of the problems, once they start dropping the bombs is the explosions causing damage to the aircraft potentially because you're yep. so low yes. um, in addition to the fires and all that and the disorientation, all that black uh -huh. smoke. And uh, yeah, so yeah. it's just really a crazy, confusing kind of battle for everybody involved, whether on the ground or in the air. And I've always thought it'd be among the most terrifying raids you could ever fly um, yeah. as, as a crewman, because if you're hit, you know, you're probably run. dead. Yeah. There's nowhere to run. I mean, you know, if you're up 10,000 feet, your aircraft's in distress, you can parachute out or whatever, yep. you know, unless you're going to somehow crash land. Okay. And uh, you know, that's problematic too, as evidenced by one of the planes crashes into a, a women's prison. That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Wild to think of, you know, know, so here's a women's prison that just happens to be there. And yep. I don't, I don't know anything about Romanian women's prisons or the history of that, but it's there. Well, I think, I think only four, about 40 of them are unscathed a hundred die and a hundred, another 200 are injured. Yeah. In addition, obviously, to the crew you know just just gone but but the other big problem is is, is getting there they they all make their kind of sort of final way mark uh which is about kind of 65 miles from proesti but then the guy who is leading the 389th bomb group a chap called colonel keith k compton 
they then make a navigational error. They take them on the wrong route. And so they end up heading towards Bucharest uh, and following the wrong railway line. You know, can railway lines are great kind of markers for people. But, you know, this is unfamiliar territory. They don't know what it is. So they see the, the, the railway line, think it's the railway line that they need to be following. And in fact, it's a completely the wrong railway line to be following. A, that swings them off the wrong course. When they realize their error, they then move up, but that then takes them over kind of, you know, that exposes them even more. And, you know, it's catastrophic, really. And it costs fuel. It costs lives. It costs effectiveness. Yep. Um, they yeah, then have the- to break, break radio silence. It's the only thing they can do because mm-hmm. because Compton hasn't worked out what's going on. And someone eventually says, you know, uh, boss, you know, we're <laughs> heading in the wrong direction. Right. But suddenly, you know, God. the cat is even more out of the bag. I mean, they're just waiting for you on that whole route as you head north now yep. to, to Ploesti. And, uh, you know, so it's the kind of thing where, yeah, if they'd had some more experience, Compton probably would have known this is the wrong rail line or, or whatever and gotten a sense of that. But this is part of just learning your way. There, yep. I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think there was a, a pilot, pilot named Philip Artery uh, in the 389th who wrote a uh-huh. fascinating book and uh, in, in an account of this. Um, hmm. And you, you get a sense of two of that, you know, not comedy of errors, not the right term, but uh, something akin to that, uh, how this has just really gone wrong and badly. And yep. uh, Artery just kind of talks about how you do the best you can under the circumstances. And I've always thought that's a bit of a microcosm for most of these crews. Um, so you got 178 planes. I think we lose, what, 52 or something, which, again, you know, to the Schweinfurt thing, you know, I mean, it's pretty similar yep. kind of scale of losses. Uh, yep. it's, I think it's eerily similar, actually. Um, and yep. some, some of these guys end up on 14-hour flight odysseys. They're the ones who do make it back. I, I don't know how yeah, that's even no, possible. Yeah, I know. It's absolutely extraordinary, aren't they? Wow. And people, people end up being kind of, you know, coming down in Turkey and ending up being yeah, sort of lots of them. prisoners lots of, of them the Turkish Turkey. and all the rest of it. And, and there's five Medal of Honors. Yeah. Of yeah, which most, three, think, four of three or four posthumous, three posthumous, I think. At least three posthumous. One that wasn't was uh, Leon Johnson, who was a colonel yes. at that time, eventually ends up as the general. It was a really remarkable figure. Yep. Um, He's 44th Bomb Group, isn't he? Because Killer Kane is, uh, Killer Kane is uh, John R. Kane, Killer Kane is the commander of the of the Halpro detachment at one point, and he's the uh, 98th Bomb Group commander. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, so there's some pretty high-speed leadership in terms of courage that they're having to learn their way. Baker, isn't it? Colonel, is it John Baker and, and John Gerstad? They're, they're, um, Who are the they're other flying recipients? Hell's Wrench. And they get hit by flak as they're kind of approaching Columbia Aquila, um, this uh, refinery. They're in real trouble, and and he knows that the, the the both the pilot and the co-pilot know that the the aircraft is done for. But they try and climb so that they can get because as you say, it's there's another of these low level things. They're desperately trying to climb to give the crew a chance to bail out, and doesn't work. Doesn't work. They all died, and That's they get incredible courage. Medal of honors. Yeah. Totally deserved. It's yeah. The level of courage is just really but, but, kind of awe-inspiring. Yeah, it really, it re- it really is. So, so it's 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 you, you. What you've got is you've got these uh, very heavy air defenses over Concordia Vega uh, and Stour Romana, um, and that's where the three hundred seventy-six um, is attacking. You've got Astra Romana, Columbia Aquila, which you mentioned. You know, these are both. Being, these are being hit by the by the ninety third uh, and the forty fourth and the three hundred seventy six as well, and every time they just run into you know endless flak. But then as they're coming out of it again, that's when they're kind of really harried by the by the 
by the fighter division. By the fighters. Yeah. So, I mean, you're looking. And German. So, your aircraft is probably damaged at that point, which makes you even more vulnerable to the fighters. You don't have any fighter escort of your own. Here we come back to our 50 calibers. You know, now they're supposed to do the job with the the gunners. Of course, a lot of guys are wounded aboard planes, too. Um, Some of these aircraft are low on fuel. Yep. I mean, it's... Uh, <laughs> you look at it, it's almost like, how did anybody get back? Uh, yep. It also shows how durable the B-24 was and the kind of range that it did have. Just, I mean, didn't, it wasn't as good looking as the B-17, but uh, on a lot of levels is a better plane, you know, in a, in a utilitarian sense, which is why it's chosen for this mission and for a lot of similar long range missions in the Pacific too, that are going on around the same time, just because, and it could, it could arguably absorb every bit as much damage as the B-17, which was also very sturdy. Um, yep. So that's probably what helped save the lives of a lot of crewmen, as it is. Um, gosh, what do we lose? About 300? 310 airmen. 310 airmen, yeah. 108 captured by, by the Axis, 78 interned in Turkey. Mm. Four taken in by Tito's partisans. Partisans, yeah, yeah. But the most amazing, the most amazing single most amazing story, um, a medal and honor winner for me, is, is Lloyd Herbert Hughes, who's the... Uh, Commander of Ole Kikapu, which is in the second final. It's the second attack on, on Stour Romana, but it's a, it's a final wave of a uh, of tidal wave. And this the, the Stoya um, Romana fine refinery is is you know a little a little way to the north of Proesti. Ole Kikapu is is part of the 389th Bond Group, and they are attacking at only thirty feet <laughs> 30 in a B twenty four. I mean, thirty feet. I just—that's like mean, ten I, meters. That—that's kind of that's lower than a than a thirty feet is a. That's a first down. That's in football. That's a first down. I mean, I don't even know uh, what it, to say about that. That uh, and, and so what happens is he he'd been hit by flak, so fuel is leaking from his plane. Yeah, right. And the bomb blast of the plane in front catches. A spark catches his fuel leak, making his B twenty four go on fire. But rather than trying to climb and bail out, bail out, he goes on and drops their bomb on the target. Then they try and climb, but don't, and the whole plane cartwheels into a dry riverbed. Wow. But the amazing thing is, four of the crew survived the crash. I don't know how that happened either. I the, just the, cannot work out how that happened. I've never worked but out. But what that a story! Either. I mean, I mean, a there's so many questions to come out of that. What are they doing at thirty feet? Yeah. The, the, the just astonishing bravery of going. You know, even though you're on fire, thinking, "Well, I got to drop my bomb." On you know, I can't just drop it. I've got to drop it on the target, not just jettison it. And then to try and climb and give your your crew a chance to get out. I mean, I mean, it's you know, it's easy to say mission first, duty first. You know, when we're all safe and happy and well fed and clean. But when you're in that actual circumstance, that re- that's what that really means that is mission first that is duty oh my first. god it's insane because wouldn't all the rest of us like normal mortals say self-preservation okay we're on fire now so let's see how we can get out of here and maybe not be on fire anymore or bail out no i mean he's dedicated that dedicated to the mission uh and that that's when you really know yeah you know what that means to so somebody. He, so 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 as he comes out of dropping the bomb his his left wing his port side wing is on fire so he thinks, okay, well, maybe I can crash land in this this riverbed. So he slows the aircraft. He managed to slow the aircraft down, and it's now, it's gone from kind of you know two hundred and thirty miles an hour, whatever, to around a hundred. And he and he's coming down into this this riverbed, and 
then the wing falls off was probably going to happen since it's on fire and it's just consumed. And it, I mean, trying to control an aircraft like that, and it's probably incredible flying. He got it as far as he did. You know, I've always and he's 22. He he's 22 years old. So he's the same age as my son. Boy, that makes you think, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely amazing. Absolutely. Because amazing. yeah, so, that's a great point, Jim. Because when we when we discuss these exploits, we think of that. I think we really think of that as a more mature and older people doing these things. But right. It wasn't. It's people absurdly young. Absurdly young. I mean. The Bulgarian Air Force is involved as well on the way back. As they're trying back on, they're attacked on the way back. I mean, you know, only 88 of the 178 make it back. Yeah, so many of the others. Some ditch and other parts of the the Mediterranean. Where you you recover the crews and and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, and some land on Cyprus, for example, so that's okay. Well, in Turkey, that's an interesting subplot to this, too, because Churchill's trying desperately to get Turkey into the war. I don't know that this is really the way to do it. (laughs) It's creating a lot of tension. Why do the Germans care about Turkey? They need chrome. Um, you know, and, and, and of course, obviously Turkey would be a great asset for the allies as a, as a bridge to the Soviet union and a million other things too. So there's a little bit of that subplot too. It puts the Turkish government in a position of, well, how do we deal with these guys now, uh, in relation to what the Germans expect from us? Um, so that, that's, that's in the offing too. Um, you know, the, from a Romanian point of view too, now your, your homeland is a war zone. And, and that might make you kind of think a little bit more hard about uh, how committed you are to the German cause or to Romanian fascism or whatever, beyond, obviously, the enormous sacrifices that Romanian armies have already made in Russia. You know, so, but this is home soil now. And then how are they going to deal with allied POWs and, and all that business, too? There's really a lot of dimensions to this. Yeah, I mean, I mean, generally speaking, I think the the... You know, a bit like Schweinfurt and Regensburg, the the Plessy raid is considered as a as, as a failure. It, it depends on what you consider the failure. I mean, did it did it knock out Plessy oil refineries? Obviously not. You know, the damage it seems was repaired in comparatively quick order. But 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 again, you know, to, to to be able to repair that level of damage in such quick time involves a huge diversion of resources, which is you know, in the nicest possible way, is is kind of a major headache for the. You know, looking at look at it generously towards the German point of view, you know that's a major headache. And, and I'm very taken by this 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 idea that 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 a, that a former SAS guy and now historian Tom Petch has been putting forward, which is that actually a lot of this time time the results are not as important as the event itself. I what he's what he's saying is it shows that it can be done. This this place can be reached. The, the, you're 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 playing into the paranoia of Hitler and to the Nazi high command. You know, the, 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 this is their this is their wor- this is their worst nightmare. You know, if, if if ever they were going to going to you know, if ever you wanted a reminder of why the Balkans, the Aegean, Italy needs to be occupied by German troops and in decent numbers, it's this. Yeah, and in the longer run, obviously, it's just the first salvo of many runs at Ploesti that are going to be more effective as time goes on. So as it turns out, of course, Romania only has a one year life cycle of being, you know, in the German column until eventually the Soviets overrun Ploesti on the ground. You know, the other thing too, what kind of social consequences does it have? uh, Do those repairs have? Because who's doing the repairs? Slave labor. So that impacts what we call the Holocaust, I think, on, mm-hmm. you know, on that level too. So if you happen to be a slave laborer, uh, it, it impacts you on that level. Um, you know, and, and yeah, I, I totally agree with that point that 
the larger purpose of this shows that it can be done. And it's really just the beginning of what the Germans are going to be getting there. Yeah. And that, that, you know, really matters a lot because Ploesti will be neutralized to a great extent. So this is just the, the tough first wave, right? But the decision to invade, the decision to invade Italy is made, I think, on the 17th of, of, of August. And, and that, that decision is, is, is made. What, what is a, one of the prime goals of going into Italy? So, so, so there's four goals for going into Italy. It's, it's to get Italy out of the war. It's to draw in German troops. That's two. It is to capture Rome, the first major capital of, of, of Europe. That's three. And it is to capture the airfields at Foggia, which will enable you to put in heavy strategic air forces in and around that complex, on that airfield complex, which will put you in Italy, which means you then don't have to kind of travel from Benghazi or from Egypt or, or, or wherever. It means you can, you know, or northern Tunisia, you can, you, you can operate straight away. Um, you're already in Italy. From which you can further tighten the noose around around Nazi Germany from a strategic bombing point of view, uh, and I'm I'm really interested to know just how much because I haven't read it, I haven't I haven't seen it. How much the Ploesti raid influences the decision to go into Italy? What we do know is that the the prospect of getting the airfields at Foggia is an absolute game changer in terms of convincing, particularly the Americans, that that it's worth backing. And of course, they're they're captured in pretty quick order. You know, they land, you know, um, in in the tow in in on the third of September. But the main effort is is avalanche at Salerno on the 9th of September. The Foggia airfields are in Allied hands by the twenty seventh of September. Job done. And, and and I think you can argue and argue very convincingly that the single most important sort of stretch of real estate in Italy is is around Foggia, um, and that's a massive kaching to to the Allies. But this operation, the difficulties of mounting it all the way from Benghazi are writ large. To be able to kind of attack Ploesti more regularly from much closer to home, from, from, from Italy, that's a very attractive proposition. Yeah, and very effective proposition, ultimately. So those goals you outlined, in 1943, you're already three for four. You know, you get Italy out of the war in the sense of no more Mussolini controlling a large nation state. Obviously, it's the beginning of an Italian civil war, and there are still fascist dimensions here and there. Um, you know, you you certainly uh, draw German troops, plenty of German troops there at a tough time for them. And you get Foggia. You're going to get Rome the next year. That's the hard part you know, as things turn out. But from a German point of view, think of all the different stressors you've got. Kursk has just really kind of gone sideways at the same time. You've dealt with Sicily where you're fighting an effective delaying action, admittedly, but it's not a win, you know, right? You're going in, you're, you're going in the wrong direction. Um, you're about to have an allied invasion of Italy, which is going to draw off troops. And then, of course, you've got this beginning of amped up Eighth uh, Air Force campaign. Uh, in addition to losing an uh, Operation Drumbeat, and uh, oh, by the way, the Battle of the Atlantic, which is what buttresses this whole war effort anyway, right? So um, so all those stressors for the Germans, the Ploesti raid, yeah, they could take satisfaction that they administered a lot of damage to the Allies, but this is a really bad harbinger in the long run. Like you said, the Hitler yeah, paranoia. I agree with you. I think that's the thing. And I, I think this is a much more significant raid than history has it. I think it's really important because I think it's it's it sharpens minds. It sharpens the Germans' mind that the the Plessy really is as vulnerable as Hitler's paranoia of as, as suggested it it is. 
it, it, it's sharpened their minds for Operation Axis. So, you know, the dismantling of the Italian army if, at, at the moment, the, the Italian surrender and, and the requirement to fill the Aegean um, and the southern Mediterranean with German troops. It is all connected to that. And, and it sharpens the Allied mind because they all they know absolutely how important Presti is to, to Germany. And if they're going to have a, and this has shown what a difficult nut it is to crack. And if they're going to do it, they want to be closer to it, the target. And therefore, the value of the of the Foggia airfields is just underlined, even more so than it was before. So much so that 17 days later, the green light is given to the invasion of, of Italy. And so much so that by the end of the year, what has become six bomb, what was originally um, outlined to be six bomb groups, becomes 21. Which is, I mean, an enormous force. You have two major strategic air forces operating now. You know, yep. one from Italy and one Eighth, from England. Eighth I mean, fifteenth, yeah. That's <laughs> by, by, by the end of November. By the end of November, I think. Think. I think the um, if I remember rightly, the fifteenth air force is constituted on the first or so of November, nineteen forty-three. Starts moving headquarters. Start moving to Italy in last week of November. I think the first operations about sixth. 8th, 10th of December, something like that. I mean, bad weather comes into play and all the rest of it. But the point is, they've got them. They're, they're even deliver- They're even building between the end of September and and the end of November 1943, they've built a pipeline from the coast to, to Foggia for fuel. I mean, it's it's a phenomenal commitment. And, and I think the impact of Tidal Wave, the raid on Presti on the 1st of August, is really important. It's all added into the mix of this decision-making at that very highest, highest level. So it's a it's a it's a good rate of cover. It's a good rate of cover. And, yeah, it um, is. And and of course, from the the crewman standpoint, there's a lot of lessons learned too. Don't know? go at thirty feet over a target. <laughs> yeah. Let's not do that again with uh, liberators. <laughs> at least yeah, we could try that example. maybe with fighters. I mean, yeah. <laughs> for yeah, some yeah. different purposes. But yeah, we're not going to do yeah. that with liberators again anytime soon. Although you will have a different kind of raid. But uh, you know, the market garden aftermath of uh, of dropping in supplies and whatnot yep. and and you know i had you know like when i did the book september hope yep. uh, i really wanted to, to shed light on that side of market garden which i felt had been a little bit overlooked and yeah. uh, a number of the crewmen who were still alive at that time told me that that was at once their the raid they remembered most fondly in terms of purpose but also right. maybe the one they were most scared because they were flying so low to an aviator, to a bomber crewman, I mean that that um, that altitude is your your protection, for lack of a better yep. way to put it. So when you're down at thirty or fifty feet, <laughs> there goes yeah. your protection, and, uh, and yeah, it, was, it was costly. Absolutely. So it reminds me of that a little bit. You know, different kind of raid, of course. But sure. That's the other time when we're going to try the low altitude thing with uh, with the heavies. No, it's fascinating stuff. Really, really yeah. interesting. Glad we've covered it. Uh, anyway, John, great, great to talk to you as always. Great to see you. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, we'll be back very, very soon. Um, until then, cheerio. See ya.